Future Pulse, investigating innovative cardiovascular research and the intersection of academic theory and clinical practice. I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, interventional cardiologist and director of cardiovascular research at CAFC. Hello, I'm Dr. Thomas Nero, and today we're going to be taking a shift from our normal podcast to talking a little bit about healthcare policy. Joining us today is Professor Christine Coughlin. Professor Coughlin is a professor of law at Wake Forest University School of Law. She has an appointment in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences and also the Center of Bioethics and Health and Society at Wake Forest. In addition, for full disclosure, she is my sister, so please don't hold that against her. Today, we're going to be discussing some of the legal aspects of the FDA approval process and its ramifications for research, as well as specifically how it will affect diversity, healthcare equity, and ultimately healthcare outcomes. Welcome, Professor Coughlin. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation. We've had a number of conversations over the years regarding health policy and the legal aspects of medicine. And I know that one of your interests is trying to create a dialogue between physicians, physician researchers, and the legal profession. Tell me, what really brought you into this initially? When I first started teaching at Wake, I lectured both in the law school and at the medical school. One characteristic of that, particularly when I was doing lectures at the medical school, was the misinformation that physicians had about the legal system and about lawyers. I had the opportunity of running a fourth-year medical school rotation at the law school and teach them the fundamentals of the law, and then I got to get law students and medical students together and do all these simulations where I would give them the opposite sides. This led to so many amazing opportunities for the students to interact and dialogue and to kind of shift their positions, both the lawyers and the doctors. And hopefully we can see the law more as a guide to help people treat patients better instead of a barrier of what you can't do. Most recently, you started writing on the FDA approval process and some of the other ramifications of our legal system on healthcare. Why don't you walk us through the FDA approval process as you see it, and then talk a little bit about what its limitations are that you see. Whenever we think about the FDA approval process, we need to first recognize the structure of our government. And I know that sounds like I'm going back to a Civics 101 course, but in order to understand the FDA, you need to understand the organizational structure. So Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, and yes, I am starting with the Constitution, as we all should, provides for a cabinet with vice president, all these department heads, one of which is the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Underneath the Secretary of Health and Human Services lie the two agencies, the FDA and its sister organization, the CDC. I start there because whenever you're talking about FDA or FDA policy, you have to recognize that it's going to be political. That doesn't mean it should or it needs to be partisan, as we have really seen in the last few years, but that they are political decisions because we're dealing with policy. So when we're thinking about FDA and FDA policy, I think the most important kind of concept to remember is this tension between safety and access. And for a long time, I thought that tension was more of a pendulum that the FDA swang back and forth from safety to access. I've 
changed my thought process on that. I now think the best policy is that neither needs to be mutually exclusive and that we can have safety and provide for access within the current FDA framework if we're willing to understand the limitations of when we can give investigational drugs to people and when we cannot. And if we're willing to provide both on a budgetary and political platform for ways to collect and gather data so that we can make meaningful observations about safety. I'm sure that the COVID epidemic really affected your thinking for how you're seeing this process. Can you give us some examples of using emergency authorizations and how that works for public trust? From the 1900s until about the 1960s, 70s, probably early 80s, and with the AIDS crisis, FDA policy was very focused on safety. But taking that kind of crisis and saying, okay, because of that, we have to provide for ways to treat sick people quickly. As a result, we have pathways where we allow drugs to either go to people who are sick or get approved more quickly based on surrogate endpoints. So, in addition to these other pathways, we found that after 9 11, we also needed a pathway to deal with a public health emergency when we had emergency countermeasures that needed to go and be distributed to the public much more quickly. So, after 9 11, Congress passed what was called Project BioShield of 2004, which allowed for an emergency use authorization of medications, vaccines, et cetera, that could be used in an emergency countermeasure. So these were authorized to be marketed, not approved, because there's a lower standard, which is what you had to show is it may be effective based on a totality of scientific information. So the FDA allows more information in and allows it to be authorized at a lower level during the emergency. And my understanding is that emergency is sort of open-ended. They can open or close that at any time, but that at some point they should make a determination. Right. And that's a really interesting point that you just brought up. Under the Public Health Services Act, there is actually a time limitation. But under the Act for Emergency Use Authorization, it just stays open until either the product receives full approval, which we've seen with Pfizer and Moderna and some other things, to we find information that would support the revocation because it is unsafe or ineffective, such as we found out with hydroxychloroquine, which was revoked 78 days after it was initially authorized under an EUA. Or the Secretary of Health and Human Services says the emergency is over. So I think that your point is something critical to our policy right now. We have had emergency use authorization now for about two years. So what does that mean? Things are coming to market very quickly. And we can talk about the public trust part of that in a moment, but is the public getting so used to that when we go back to the full approval process? Will people say, no, we want those drugs more quickly? Also with that, there are some caveats, correct? That when they give those emergency use uh, authorizations, that there is an expectation for a higher level of post-marketing follow-up. You are absolutely right. That is there. But, you know, think about the incentives that that provides. A lot of patients, if they can get the drug that they want through an EUA, are not as willing to participate in clinical trials. So it may be harder to get the supporting data. 
I was reading in one of your papers and you were referring back to the Ebola crisis. And one of the problems was that they allowed for emergency use authorization, but they did not actually get the data that should have been required at the time. And they missed a great opportunity. At some point, we have to make sure that we have the mechanisms in place to either take that data and somehow make it meaningful, which I don't think we're at the point yet of having been able to optimize real world data like we should to avoid what happened at Ebola. When we're talking a little bit about the other pathways for approval, what other pathways are there currently now available? There's accelerated approval. So accelerated approval allows FDA to, I'll use the word conditional approval, but I don't want anyone to get that mixed up with what happens under the EU framework, which has a different framework for conditional approval. But it allows the sponsor to market the product based on a surrogate endpoint. The problem that we've found with accelerated approval is that despite the fact that there are these post-market studying requirements, we found that a lot of sponsors weren't actually abiding by them. And there's been all sorts of studies that have come to light, particularly in the past year, that some sponsors aren't having requirements until like the year 2026 to finish the clinical trials. So these things would have been out on the market for many years and could potentially harm patients. As a result, there's actually two bills in Congress pending, a Republican bill, which is more of a counterproposal to the initial Democratic bill that would reform the accelerated approval pathway. I think something will be happening in that area soon, and we will see what that is and whether it happens before or after the midterm. Do both, do both of those bills require extensive post-marketing surveys and post-marketing follow-up? Both do. However, the Democrat bill provides a specific time limitation by which you have to complete the studies or the drug needs to be withdrawn. And the Republican counterproposal is a bit more friendly to pharma and allows the FDA to make rules that would promote reporting. It's quite interesting being part of a lot of clinical trials. We see that the trials don't always go the way that we would like. And we would often overestimate the effectiveness of drugs or, or overestimate the severity of outcomes within a population and realize that we do need more time or we need more patients or we need something more in order to prove to with a reasonable doubt that we're correct, right? For the p value of less than 0.05 or whatever our standard is going to be for the trial. I understand the need for increasing the length out when it's appropriate. And I'm sure that that's one of those things where lawyers will talk about that a lot in the future about how do we make sure that there is some flexibility because the future is hard to predict. Who would have predicted we would have been where we are today? True enough. With both of these issues, one of the interesting conundrums is this one about liability protection. But as we're going, especially into emergency use authorizations, that we're giving some liability protection to the pharmaceutical companies. How do you see that sort of working for us? And how do you see that working against us? I see it primarily working for us. I think that if you go back and look at the history, what happened when we thought that there was going to be another Spanish flu-like epidemic in 1976, we tried to deploy a national vaccine program. We saw that manufacturers weren't really wanting to take part in such a large deployment without some type of liability protection, especially if we're asking them to do it quickly. So as a result, we do have, for early childhood vaccines, we have a vaccination program that can help to provide compensation for people who have been injured. We have the same type of thing with COVID. 
And we also provide liability protection for sponsors and manufacturers. I think that the marketplace and the incentive of wanting to be a big player in the vaccine world also promotes safety. The big question is, what is the con? People will be trying to cut corners. Well, we have the FDA regulations and all the oversight. We have significant oversight with vaccines. And then, you know, we just have market controls. And so I think that that kind of counteracts any kind of manufacturer liability issues. But in a way also, though, this can be a negative because as we looked at COVID, but also happened with the Spanish flu, is that people started not trusting the vaccines because it appeared like it was being put out too quickly, that there weren't going to be protections there, and that we're going to protect big pharma and not worry about the individual patient. And that's all, in, in my humble opinion, a result of ineffective messaging on the part of public health. And also, especially in COVID, the partisan nature of the public health messaging. Another piece to this is the larger question of health equity and a separate question about how we grant access to investigational drugs. How do you see that affecting research in general and healthcare policy? So in order to address that, I need to finish the kind of framework that we started a few questions ago. But we started talking about accelerated approval. There are also additional pathways. So there's expanded access, which I can get to in a moment, right to try. And then there's a lot of incentive-based programs that might not necessarily provide for earlier approval, or you could be used in connection with an accelerated approval, but will provide tax credits or other incentives for rare or orphan drugs. So in order to answer that question, you need to look at the whole spectrum of the laws and how they work together, because FDA laws are extremely precise and complex and integrated area of law. And pulling up this legislative framework as a whole, when we talk about those things specifically, you start talking about identifiable lives versus statistical lives. And as researchers, we are very interested in statistical lives because that's how we figure out what's really effective and how effective it is. We talked already about the safety and access conundrum, the false dichotomy from 1901 and 1902 until probably the 70s, 80s, we were more in this protective framework. And then after the AIDS crisis, we started saying, okay, we also have to provide for sick patients. And this is where I think identified lives really come in. So when you had all of these AIDS patients lying down in front of the FDA offices, you started seeing this is happening as a result of FDA policy. People are dying. FDA is worrying about these obscure standards of safety for future patients, and we have patients dying now. And the news media was covering it. And so as a result, we said, we need to start allowing people who are sick because of these identified lives, allowing people who are sick to take the risk and gain access to these medications. So we had expanded access, which is a pathway through the FDA in which either an individual, a small group, or a larger population of sick individuals may have access to unapproved medications. And then we had another case of identified lives. We had Abigail Burroughs, who was a UVA student who had head and neck cancer. 
even though there was a experimental treatment out there for head and neck cancer, she was not eligible to be in any clinical trials or to get it in any other way. She ultimately passed away. Her father created Abigail Alliance, which sued the FDA. Years of litigation ensued. It was unsuccessful, but afterwards, it created a a movement basically to get these right-to-try laws passed. And so sick patients and their advocates would have an avenue outside the FDA to try to gain access to investigational medications and to say, I feel like I'm worth the risk. I want to take that risk. So what are the problems with that? If you're going within the spectrum of the FDA through expanded access, 99% of all requests for investigational drugs are approved. Sponsors can direct costs to patients. So the, the drugs aren't necessarily free, but they're not going to you know, gouge the patient. Because it's within the FDA, there are more controls and we're able to access treatment data more easily. In the right to try scenario, which I do think it's a good thing to always have these opportunities, but again, that's an identified life. But on a statistical lives basis, having this alternative pathway that does not depend upon clinical trial participation can also have us lose data. And we don't know then whether or not this treatment is going to be effective for the larger population. I use those two stories to try to illustrate the fact that identified lives and trying to show somebody who's sick can be a really powerful motivator to change policy. But the only way that we're going to be able to use it in an appropriate way is to consider it on a statistical lives basis. Certainly, there's an aspect to this about raising awareness that I think that can't be lost here. We'll be talking about these head and neck cancers. People may get earlier detection because they're hearing about it. And also, it does motivate some of the pharmaceutical companies in order to do some other development. But I also worry about the possibility that what it does is focus our attention on an individual or one class of individuals, you know, a middle-class white woman versus everyone else. And that it then makes other people feel that the healthcare setting and the healthcare system is not working for them and that they're not being cared for. My co-author, Nancy King, and I, in for one article, we really looked at a lot of the top stories that have been able to move policy. And one of the things we commonly found, you're correct, they were generally middle to upper class white individuals who were attractive in a social media campaign that were the basis of the identifiable life movement for that particular condition. So whose stories are being left out? And that's what's really important, especially when we have the healthcare disparities that we have. One of the issues that we're looking at is this question of diversity and getting more people into research trials and getting them involved in our healthcare writ large, getting them to the offices and making sure that people trust us as physicians and healthcare providers to be able to care for them. And if they don't see us as being their advocate, then we're going to fail because we will never have that opportunity. We're going to shift gears here. And I did want to talk about what you see as some of the barriers to performing clinical trials and diversity and how that fits within the framework of the things that we've been discussing. You know, diversity has become one of the most important aspects of how we're going to be 
perform our clinical trials because it's really important for us to make sure that the trial covers the population whom we are treating. And we can't be treating people if they're not in these trials. We have to recognize that there may be different populations that respond differently. From a legal aspect, do you see that there are specific barriers to involvement in clinical trials and maybe there there are ideas that you have thought about that would decrease those barriers? I wish there was a simple answer. And I think like any issue of structural racism, it's insidious and longstanding. I think the biggest issue is that of public trust. And when we have the history that we do with respect to medical research, and unfortunately, all of the atrocities that have been done in the name of science, especially to people in communities of color, is going to be hard to gain that trust back, particularly if those who are running the clinical trials and those physicians tend to be white males or females. What needs to happen? I think that a lot of public education, going into communities, making sure that our teams are as diverse as possible. I do believe that we need to be talking to people on the ground and getting people in the communities to help us with the efforts in clinical trials to show that we are interested in creating therapeutics or treatment that are going to help with some of the things that this population is dealing with. I think that's key. A lot of people say that the pandemic has exposed a lot of the health disparities. They have been there. They haven't exposed it. What's done is it's magnified it. And we need to be looking and we need to be listening and we need to be acting. That is a great idea to end on because, as you said, there's no clear answer here except that we do need to be putting in more effort into our trials, into our research divisions, into how we communicate with all the populations that we're treating and making sure that we don't limit ourselves so that we can be certain that we have uh, good outcomes. And I think if I, if I could say one more thing, one thing that I think is key is that we need to look back at our history, whether it's on FDA policy, whether it's with clinical trials, and not expect change when we haven't reckoned with what has happened in the past. I can't thank you enough for uh, taking your time today to talk about these issues. I think that this is just the beginning of many conversations, uh, probably many conversations that you and I will have, but more conversations that we'll need to have uh, in the future so that we're not continuing these systemic problems that we've had in the past. And that should help to improve healthcare equity overall. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It is wonderful to have these kind of discussions. And I think that only through having discussions with people in different professions and looking at the problems from a different perspective, are we actually going to create solutions that will effectuate change. Thank you and have a great day.